Netflix's secret way to predict your likes, and Twitter streams NFL games. That's great for the NFL, I guess. This is episode 40 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker. Tom, Netflix's secret way to predict your likes. I don't know, maybe it's not all that secret. It's from a piece in uh, Fortune, and the title of the piece is Netflix says geography, age, and gender are, quote, garbage for predicting taste. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? <laughs> the, uh, the article goes on to say Netflix uses one predictive, uh, even though they're all over the world, right? They use one predictive algorithm worldwide, and it treats demographic data as almost irrelevant. Geography, age, gender, we put that in the garbage heap, Vice President of uh, Product Todd Yellen said. Instead, viewers are grouped into clusters almost exclusively by common taste, and their Netflix homepages highlight the relatively small slice of content that matches their taste profile. So the taste uh, profiles could be the same for someone in New Orleans as well as someone in New Delhi, although obviously they'd have different, different libraries to choose from. So demographics doesn't matter, Tom. What's your take on that? Well, I thought, the, first of all, the subhead of the article uh, states that big data is making broad categories irrelevant for targeting consumers. And I read that mm -hmm. a few times, and I said, well, that's kind of a strange statement. Either broad categories are relevant in targeting consumers, or they're not. Having more or better data doesn't make something irrelevant. It simply right. exposes the lack of relevance, right? So anyway, I hope that this article isn't a surprise to anyone that this is coming. And, and the insights in this really, to me, the implications and insights that, that floored me. I mean, imagine telling marketers that geography, age, and gender are garbage for predicting people's preferences. What would mm -hmm. that do to their particular industry and their strategic decision-making. I mean, what you're in the media research industry. What's going to do to the media research industry? Well, I feel like this article is such kind of a tangent to anything that matters because if you're Netflix, if you're Amazon and you have access to this wealth of data, you'd be foolish not to use it. And for your perspective where you've got this, you know, supermarket worth of inventory that you want to connect with the right consumers, sure, the better data you have about individual tastes and preferences, the better off you'll be. But that's not the job of most marketers, most brands, even most media companies. They don't have an infinite uh, shelf space, right? Uh, they're dealing where in a space where abstractions are useful, where generalizations are helpful, where they actually are informative. And, you know, I, I think this is an oversimplification or maybe an undersimplification, depending on how you want to look at it. For example, you know, does this mean that when we talk about uh, behaviors associated with millennials, that's garbage? Does this mean when we talk about behaviors that are associated with boomers, that's garbage. Aren't there some things that actually do correlate with age, even if it's, it isn't your specific, exact, precise movie tastes? In other words, aren't there things to be learned from these generalities when we're looking across a sweep of audience as opposed to individuals? Well, yeah, listen, in, in, broad, in some broad categories of products and services, maybe, right? But if you get into, the, into content and media, um, you know, instead of a proxy for preference, they're saying let's segment based on 
actual preference or taste, sure. as it's described in the article, right? I think there was sure. a, the quote in the article is, to target the customers who want what you're offering, you have to get past the surface and see what really makes them tick, which is the same thing as me saying feelings are what drives people's choices of brands, sure, but also of information to support those feelings. And it was almost impossible to do any of this prior to the internet. And the key, mm -hmm. and this is much easier said than done, is how do we earn the trust of our audience so that we can acquire and use this information, not simply for their benefit, right, to make their experience more relevant, but also for our own benefit so that we can seek out and speak in a particular fashion with particular offerings that appeal to tastes of, of particular people. Look, Mark, let me tell you why this struck me maybe uh, is, is quite relevant. So it, this became viscerally clear to me this past week. I received this email notification that someone unsubscribed from my monthly newsletter. And mm -hmm. the subscriber, who's now, they've been reading my work for the past three years, they provided a reason. Now I'm going to read the reason to you. No relevant information for me now. So I, I read this thing <laughs> over and over. Right? Now, I'm reading this over and over, and I'm saying, what is she trying to tell me? So this is what she's trying to tell me. She's saying, Tom, look, I love what you write, but I'm very busy. I'm inundated with content. So right now, since your content is not helping me do what I'm trying to do, whatever that is for her, she needs to tune it out. This is going to happen everywhere and to everyone. Just look at the declining open rates of emails. This is, mm -hmm. this is a big, big thing. I mean, eventually your content is going to be completely tailored based on the clicks you, that you make in that content to bring you whatever's most relevant, or you're going to tune that content out, Mark. I certainly agree with that, where you have that data and not everyone does. But even so, that does create the risk of kind of paralysis by analysis or so much granularity that you miss the big picture because you're focused on pleasing people on a granular basis. And Netflix is a great example of this. If you go to Netflix on Roku, where I get most of my Netflix, and you go through the categories, you'll see things like, you know, Here's the, based on your preferences, here's a, here are the thrillers with a strong female lead. Now, <laughs> Tom, I know. I've never said to anybody, gosh, you know, I'd really like to see a thriller with a strong female lead. So to a degree, this granularity gets you, gets you so narrow in bandwidth that you lose sight of questions like, for example, when I go to Netflix, I want to say, gosh, show me a great new horror movie. And, you know, there is no category for that or you have to dig so far to get it. So that granularity is not always a good thing. And then the other thing is just because you act one, crazy one day one way doesn't mean you want to act crazy all the time. For example, my wife and I watched a few episodes of the old 70s show Kolshak the Night Stalker. And for some reason, Netflix believes that that means we want to watch Columbo. <laughs> we don't want to watch Columbo. I don't care how many people like me enjoy those two things together. So I think to a degree, just to back up a little bit, it's possible to say, you know, I want to see what's most popular. I want to dive into The Walking Dead or I want to experience American Idol or The Voice. I want to 
play with what most people are playing with, irrespective of granular taste, irrespective maybe even of demographics. I'm with you, but that's assuming, and that's why I said the challenge is to earn trust and develop a relationship so that you know you can give feedback, so you can say, look, I'm not interested in that, I'm interested in this, or... So, so it's this back and forth that's going to allow these this big data to learn about how to make things that much more relevant to your tastes. And and you know, in in at some point, you can also say to it, "I want you to surprise me as well," and it'll do that. It, it, to me, this is this is kind of breakthrough. Now, how long it's going to take um, marketers to figure out how to use this and how to get, and, and more importantly, how to get their their audiences to trust them enough to give them the feedback. Mm-hmm. That, that to me, is, is the big key. Certainly, and it's certainly also true they're not there yet. Not yet, nope. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, Twitter gets NFL Thursday night games for a bargain price. That's the title from Bloomberg. And boy, are they effusive about this news. Here's just the opening. Twitter just did its first broadcast deal, and it's a big one. <laughs> The company will stream 10 Thursday night National Football League games during the 2016 season, a package that will cost them around $10 million, according to someone familiar with the matter. This is a triumph for Twitter, which struggled to attract new users, which is struggling to attract new users and expand its content beyond the posts of journalists, politicians, and celebrities. Well, Tom, I read this first of all, and I thought, "This this is... the biggest thing to happen to Twitter ever, according to this article and only this article. What makes this such a triumph for Twitter? Will it attract new users? Are you asking me that question? <laughs> I am. Yeah, I'm asking you. Look. I have my look, answer. Look, so so Twitter CEO, so Jack Dorsey, he says, uh, people watch NFL games with Twitter today. Now they'll be able to watch right on Twitter Thursday nights. And I And I said to myself, really? Really? So instead of watching my team on a giant screen TV with beer and chips in my hands and glancing every once in a while, usually during commercial breaks, at my tablet or phone to see, you know, on Twitter what the various reactions were to certain plays, instead, I'm going to watch the game on what, my computer or my iPad? Well, I'm not... I'm not quite so cynical about the destination as you are, because certainly we know some of this viewing is going off the big screens to smaller screens. But I would, I would, I would follow that line of logic and say, when was the last time you said to someone, "I want to go to Twitter to watch the big game"? To me, it's a matter of expectation, Tom. And I, you know, I, I Twitter does what it does very well for people who consider it, uh, who consider it to solve a problem that they have when they're watching these games. They get to dive into real time conversation and so on. But the idea of merging these two things as anything other than a, you know, to, to excuse the pun, Hail Mary pass for Twitter, who, whose growth has stalled and whose profitability is marginal at best, um, that's how it strikes me as, gosh, guys, what should we do? I know, let's invest in some content, even though nobody comes to us for that now. Yeah. Well, look, Twitter is... Because the scenario I described is not going to happen, right? So Twitter is after the cable cord cutters who can't get the game on their big TVs. But here's the catch-22, Mark. NFL fans are not cord cutters. So, so then you have to ask yourself, what the hell's going on here then? Now, TechCrunch reported that the deal with the NFL could be a huge boost for Twitter because Twitter is best when paired with live TV. <laughs> I mean, the quote, the yeah. quote on TechCrunch was, 
It's the fine Cabernet to a medium rare filet mignon. I mean, I, <laughs> no, serious. I, I mean, are you, either these folks are guzzling Cabernet or maybe moonshine or something. This has nothing to do with anything. It's just what you said. Twitter's losing relevance. They're trying anything they can think of. So why not peel off a cool 10 to 20 million of the 3.5 billion in cash they're sitting on and try to create some noise? Because I don't see the relevance. Here's the thing you said, Tom. You said they're doing this for the cord cutters, but NFL viewers aren't cord cutters. Well, I'll even go one step beyond that. They're doing this not even, I, I mean, it's not even for that reason, because the games they're talking about are games that are will be broadcast, not just on cable, Tom, but on CBS and NBC, each of which paid $45 million a game for five Thursday night contests during each of the past two seasons, including the upcoming season. So these games will be available on the traditional media. The question is, you know, what additional platforms will carry these games? So that makes the Twitter coverage even that less relevant. So Twitter's getting in its own way in terms of offering this content when people want to go to Twitter to talk about the content, not to experience the content. It's not why you go to Twitter and it's not the context in which you want to watch long-form programming, period. <laughs> the only, only one this makes sense for, in my mind, is the NFL. They love this, right? They've got the audience. Absolutely. They've got the consumers and the advertisers that, that all of these struggling digital media platforms are drooling over. So, hey, what, let's make a few bucks, you know, 10 million, and we'll sit back and we'll watch this digital experiment unfold. There's no downside for, the, for these guys. The downside is to, on Twitter's end. Did you read about the, Absolutely. the limit? Did you read about the limitations of the deal? No. First, Oh, Twitter, in terms of advertising, yeah. Not just that. They have limited ability to advertise within the stream because it's coming from CBS and NBC. And they can't stream it to mobile phones because Verizon already owns those rights. So I, 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 have, I don't even know what this is. <clears throat> Look, <clears throat> here's what this is. NFL chose Twitter above higher bidding competitors, by which I, take, I took to mean more threatening competitors to network affiliates, right? So they took, the, they took the safest bidder that allowed them to create an experiment that allowed them to create a little bit of buzz and create some news for Twitter and do a favor to Twitter, some publicity in other words. And they were able to take the one that at the same time least threatened their network partners. That's number one. Secondly, and this is the paragraph that I think summed it up. By using Thursday night games to experiment with different kinds of media distribution models and technologies, the NFL is preparing for its next round of negotiations. The league's biggest broadcast contracts expire in 2021, and by then it will be ready to sell a broad array of digital rights and make more money. And this, to me, is the key, because if this thing on Twitter doesn't work, it will be Twitter's fault. And if it does work, it will be... Uh, outbid uh, uh, by someone other than Twitter during the next contract negotiation. So Twitter loses either way, in other words. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We've pulled back the curtain. So th they must know what they're doing. Maybe it was just a big publicity stunt. Of course they do. There's, uh, they've known what they're doing ever since they started. And now that they're not growing and barely profitable, they still know what they're doing. <laughs> Tom, it's, it's time for rants and raves. What do you have this week? Okay, well, I, this isn't a rant or a rave. It's, it's an observation. So based on what I'm seeing, I think we're going to see a lot more people and organizations taking a page out of Donald Trump's marketing playbook and strategically hacking the media in order to build their brand's awareness. 
So take the most recent case of the lovely and talented Kerry Washington of scandal fame. Mm -hmm. Have you heard mm -hmm. the quote-unquote news? No. Oh, yeah. so you, this is news now. I saw it all over the television everywhere. So she does an interview in a photo shoot with Ad Age. Ad Age, the poster child yeah. publication for image and message manipulation. And now she's- <laughs> That's on their masthead. Isn't that on their masthead? Are you ready for this? <laughs> are you ready? She's surprised by the yes. scandalous Photoshopping job they did to her image on the cover. <laughs> okay, ad aged. I mean, this it's almost comical. So she posts a lengthy piece on her Instagram account saying, quote, I have to be honest, I was taken aback by the cover. And it felt strange to look at a picture of myself that is so different from what I look like when I look in the mirror. It's an unfortunate feeling. Well, first off, mm -hmm. Kerry, when you look in the mirror, your image is reversed, okay? It's not what the camera or anyone other than yourself is actually seeing. But, mm -hmm. let's, but let's pull the curtain back on this a bit. She goes on in her rant, okay, to then rave about the magazine and the article... <laughs> And the article, to how many followers on Instagram? To her 2.5 million Instagram followers. Oh, she, she writes, grab this week's ad week. Read it. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> now, guess what, the ad age, guess what the ad age article discusses? Among other what? promotional things, her brand partnerships, her uh -huh. upcoming television roles. Look, uh -huh. The way it looks to me, this is a case of a couple of brands, a media personality, mm -hmm. Kerry Washington, a media publication, Adweek. They team up to hack social media and strategically right. get mainstream media properties to give them as much exposure as they can possibly get. And no surprise, it worked. Hmm. So this is, uh, this is kind of a weird thing to be looking out for because, look, media has always been in, in the manipulation business. But now that we are all media as well, I fear we'll soon be swimming in this stuff and we're going to lose our ability to discern. Never mind. We can't discern it anyway. We've already lost it. So welcome to the 21st century, Mark. You know, it's, it's, that's so true. And it's a conversation I have with my wife. She'll say, oh, competing yoga studio. She, she's a yoga studio owner. Competing yoga studio has an event sold out. And I'll say, that event's not sold out. They're just saying it's sold out. That's or she'll right. say, look, they said it's full. No, it's not full. Or they're, look at all these events they're publishing. Yeah, but half of them are canceled and republished later because they're still trying to fill them. <laughs> <laughs> because we're so, and you know, you go to the web pages of these teachers and they're all kind of perfect postures and idyllic natural settings uh, done with professional we photographers. We don't know what's real and, and who, anymore. Who they're the product ambassador for. And it's unbelievable. Nobody cares about doing the work. They just care about showing the appearance of having uh, completed the work. It's really yeah. an amazing thing. I think you're absolutely right. Well, I have two rants, neither of which are uh, as, as uh, thoroughly uh, thought out as yours. I just want to warn you. Um, <laughs> here's the first one. This is from a, a piece in uh, Tube Filter. And the article says, there are now 2,000 YouTube channels with at least 1 million subscribers. And that just blew me away. Um, Listen to these statistics. From 2010, which was around YouTube's fifth birthday, lest we forget, there were only five channels with at least 1 million subscribers. Two years later, 68. Two years later, 594. Two years later, 2,000. I mean, it, it's amazing. Wow. 
how many channels there are with more than a million followers. And they tried to look into why that is. And it, there are a lot of factors, including, you know, the kind of the, the corporatization of YouTube's, you know, reach out uh, efforts. The fact that uh, lots of name brand entertainment platforms, the Colbert Show and so on, are integrating into YouTube and building their channel followings. The fact that Vivo alone has a huge number of music video channels and uh, music videos on YouTube. And that contributes, they, they, Vivo alone has hundreds of million subscriber channels managed by Google, Sony Music, and Uni uh, Universal Music uh, because those, those are the co-venture partners. So it just occurred to me, if there are more than 2,000 YouTube channels with at least 1 million subscribers, what does that mean? Does that does that even mean anything? Is that I, I don't worth? Know. I mean, the more I mean, you, it used to be that a million was a big number, right? This is like Austin Powers. You know, <laughs> a million was a big number. No, now it's going to be a mean? billion. I, it means nothing. Yeah, that, but what's that even mean? I don't know. This is what. It, yeah. Yet this is an article, so I'm saying, well, what does this mean? Is this good? Is this bad? Does this mean that you're all hopeless if you don't have a million, <laughs> or that you're hopeless if you do? Nobody knows. Right. So that's rant number one. Um, here's number two. I came across this thing on the Shopify site, you know, Shopify allowing you to create your yep. own your own custom shops. And they say, it's a free slogan maker. And I thought, well, this is irresistible. <laughs> a free slogan maker. Now, I'm assuming <laughs> they're going to put a lot of AI into this, right? Because they want to generate actually useful slogans for you in order to get you to sign up to slo uh, uh, Slogify. I almost said Shopify. <laughs> Slogify might be available, but a better name is Slogify. So I just thought I would enter Media Unplugged in the space and click Generate Slogans and see what happens. So I just wanted to share with you some of the slogans uh -oh. that emerged uh -oh. from the free slogan maker over at Shopify. Here we go. Put a Media Unplugged in your tank. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody doesn't like Media Unplugged. You're in good hands with oh, Media man. Unplugged. <laughs> um, let's see. Mamma Mia, that's a spicy Media Unplugged. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> obviously, Tom, these are all 100% authentic and created from scratch and not appropriated from any other oh, places over no, the decades, right? Absolutely. Now, this one, it makes any sense to me at all. I think they're trying to work the English to support Media Unplugged, but it's, you know, d does she or doesn't she? Remember that whole thing? Right. Here's what right. it comes up on the uh, gener slogan maker. Does you, does you does or does you doesn't take Media Unplugged? <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite one. That's not very catchy. <laughs> I think my favorite has to be uh, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a media unplugged it is. <laughs> <laughs> Another week. <laughs> <laughs> that should be our tagline for sure. Oh, That's man. Media Unplugged for this week. Uh, please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. <laughs> While you're there, <laughs> please rate this show. It helps other folks discover us for better or, let's face it, for worse. You can also catch us at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Village, or wherever, you know, sickness and viruses can be found. <laughs> oh, Net News Check and the American Marketing Association also. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, we couldn't really care less. <laughs> you can read the show notes and share the show at our website. <laughs> this is a test to see if people actually listen this far, Tom. At our yeah, website, mediaonplug.net. <laughs>
I hope so. That If you heard this far, if you listen this far, send us a note because we don't believe you. That's right. Special <laughs> thanks to the amazing producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Dashmit, who has nothing to be ashamed about this week. Exciting audio for media. <laughs> you can find him at jeffdashmit.com. For the fantabulous Tom Asacker, I'm the struggling Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 